passages there out of Isaiah. And I've read it several times this last couple of weeks. Well, you have five more days of shopping before Christmas. How you doing on your list? Good, right? Before I tell you what I got you for Christmas, I'm going to need to know what you got me. I mean, that's how it works, right? I mean, before you go out and you, you, you purchase your gifts for whoever you may be purchasing it for, you kind of need to know what they, what they got for you, and maybe you set a limit. So, you know, maybe the household says, okay, nothing over $20, nothing over $10, or whatever the case may be, because the last thing you want to do is show up with a $10 gift when someone's going to give you one for 50 right? Because that's just not Christmassy. That's just not how we do it. My, my family, a couple of years ago, we decided that we were going to do an as-seen-on-TV Christmas. And so uh, all the gifts have to be part of that as-seen-on-TV. And then we do the white elephant and swap back and forth. And so we don't really necessarily do a name. We just kind of do a number once we get there. But everybody's got one of those as-seen-on-TV gifts. And I have to tell you, there's some really cool stuff out there. I already have a sandwich maker, so please don't rush out and get me one of those. Um, we have of gloves already in our house, so don't rush out and get me any of those either. So I use those on a regular basis too, by the way. And so if you're still wondering what to get me for Christmas, as seen on TV is a good place, but just know that I have a large family and I have some of those good quality items already. But we do that a little bit when it comes to gift giving, right? We start thinking about this, this little acronym, and we've all probably heard it, that what's in it for me, that WIFM acronym. Have you all heard that before? And it gets at the time of year when you start challenging gift giving, you start thinking about who do I give to or what do I give to, or even and don't raise your hands and don't look at your spouse. But have, have you ever got to a place to say, you know what, I, I really don't want to spend that much money on that person because that person doesn't really do much for us anyway. I really don't want to buy that nice of a gift for somebody. Anybody else there? Okay, I'm going to be honest and go, I'm, I'm kind of one of those people. And sometimes a little bit of that is just because, you know, I don't want to just put a whole lot of effort into to, to someone that's not going to put a whole lot of effort or hasn't put a whole lot of effort. And then I get to the whole deal of, you know, I really don't have a good relationship with them. I feel like I'm just having to buy a gift because that's just the social contract of the day. Am I the only one like that? No. <laughs> yes, I'm the only one, John. We're praying for you this morning, right? But we kind of get this whole what's in it for me ideal, right? And, and if you, you've ever been in any situation, whether it be gift giving or Christmas or whatever, or anything that says before I commit to something, I want to know what's in it for me. Because really at the end of the day, whatever I invest my time, my energy, my resources into, it doesn't really matter unless I get something out of it. Because it's really all about me. It always has been. And if you don't know that that's true, then just watch children unwrap presents on Christmas Day. <laughs> it's about them, right? And if you're grandparents, let me just tell you right now, shame on you. I think you perpetuated that in the household. I'm just kidding. A little bit. What's in it for me? You know, we all ask that question on some level throughout our lifetime for a variety of different reasons. And, it, and if you're out there online with us this morning, you know, you're welcome to share with us kind of one of those questions. I'd love for you all to just kind of tune in and say hello here in the, the live audience to our folks there. But I, I just, I just want to just kind of get your mind thinking a little bit about how that what's in it for me mindset is so contrary to service to God. It is so outside of, of, of what we really, what right do we have to ask God what's in it for us? The author and sustainer of life who spoke everything into existence, who created us with plan and purpose, and yet when we sometimes look at serving God, we ask, well, what's in it for me? We've been studying the book of Malachi for the last couple of weeks, and, and we find ourselves in Malachi chapter 3. And this is one of the favorite places in Malachi. And if you've ever heard a Malachi message before, you've probably only heard this part of it because this one talks about giving. 
This talks. This is the one that every pastor, at least in the Western culture, lays down on the gauntlet of his pulpit and says, this morning we're going to talk about giving because in the Old Testament, Malachi talked about giving, and he warned the people that if they didn't give, if they didn't bring all the tithe into the storehouse, that bad things were going to happen. Now this morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to open up your wallets and just give till it hurts. Have you all heard those sermons before? You're not going to hear one of those this morning. We need your giving. I appreciate your giving. I expect you to give. I really do. As your pastor, that's my expectation for you because we do great ministry in our community and around this world, and it takes resources to get that done. And anybody who understands anything about economics understands that. They also understand if you don't talk about those things, those things don't happen. And to be perfectly honest with you, Angelo and and Lance and, and, and I, we like to eat. And so your giving actually goes to paying our salary so we can do those things. So I have a vested interest in this. But I've got an even greater interest in what's in it for you when we start talking about giving. And so before you turn the button off on giving and before you think it's just going to be one more of those messages where the pastor gets up and tells us how important this is, I want you to really put this in the right frame of mind. Is that what was happening in Malachi's day as the messenger, as what his name means, what was happening in those days is that he was telling the people, he was telling them very clearly that your relationship with God is so out of focus that you're not where you're supposed to be, and you're blaming God for your current situation instead of taking ownership for the decisions that you've made. Boy, that sounds like us today, doesn't it? Not much has changed in humanity since God created us from the very beginning. We're still making some of those decisions. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to find ourselves in verse 6 this morning. We're going to read a couple of verses. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to share with you a little bit about kind of the context of what was going on during the day so that you can better understand that they were asking this same question, what's in it for me, but they're actually asking God directly. And so in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, this is is what the, the, the word says to us. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? You know, this, this verse 7 right here, Malachi chapter 3, pretty much sums up all of humanity and God's relationship with humanity since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden all the way to today. Because what God is saying to the people here and what he's using Malachi as messenger to speak to the people is that he's calling them out and he's saying that I want for you to repent and return to me And the people are finding reasons why they shouldn't have to do that. They're looking right at God and saying, I know that you're calling me back. I know you want a better relationship with me. But you know what, God? You're the bigger person here. Why should I have to do all the heavy lifting? Why should I have to do all the work? And right here in this message, we actually see a clear presentation of the gospel where God has called out to his people and he says, listen, I want to be with you forever and I want you to be my people, but you need to return to me because I, the Lord, do not change. I haven't moved. I made a promise to your father Jacob and his father Isaac and his father Abraham and I have not changed, but yet you keep running away from me and I have punished you and I have spared some of you and I have inflicted pain upon some of you. I have brought down plagues. I have preserved you. I have elevated you you but I the Lord do not change because I made a promise and my promise was that I would be your God and you would be my people and yet you're asking me why should we return to you and you're trying to find all the reasons why you don't have to do that I can just I can just can you imagine that conversation do you remember being teenagers some of you 
and just arguing with mom and dad about something you knew that they were right about, but you were not going to give in on that argument. It did not matter if they were right or not. The point is that I'm sticking to my guns on this one. And I'm not arguing the merits of the case. I'm arguing my own attitude and I'm arguing my own shameful face, right? I want to make sure that I don't lose anything on this battle, no matter how wrong I am. That pretty much sums up every teenager you ever met, right? Things haven't changed, have they? And then everybody pouts and they run off and they slam a door and we don't talk to each other. I mean, even younger kids, they, they move out, right? They threaten to run away. Well, I'm just going to leave. You know, Jonah tried that. Jonah starts off with that famous verse at the very beginning. He went to a place outside of the presence of God. There is no such a place. It does not exist. Mankind has been looking to get away from the presence of God forever and ever. And guess what? It does not exist. And if you ever find it, you will find yourself in a place called hell, a real place. But God has prepared for those who have rejected him, not just those that have decided this or that, but who have rejected him, who have with great intentionality decided, I will not return to God. And this is Malachi saying return, and this is God calling back and saying, if you'll return to me, says the Lord. And they say, well, how, how are we supposed to return to you? I mean, after all, you've done all this stuff to us, right? There it is again, mankind blaming God for having done these things. But look what happens in verses 8 through 12. God replies to this question, and, he, and, and it may look a little bit like he, he makes a turn here, but he doesn't. He's just trying to play along with their logic a little bit. He says, he says this, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You might want to underline that in your Bible. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The people are still complaining to God that all around them, these other nations are prospering, but they're not. And if we're these chosen people of you, then why aren't we prospering? You've given us back our temple. You've given us back our holy land. We have Jerusalem being rebuilt. Israel, we're, we're back occupying this land that you promised, but we're still not prosperous. And we're watching all these other people around us seem to be doing well. And after all, God, if we're your chosen people, then why is there famine in the land? Why are there locusts eating up our crops? Why are all these things happening? And God actually says, and I feel like I'm taking a little liberty here, but just give me a second. What, what God's actually kind of saying to them is like, you've been pushing my buttons for a long time, and I've kind of had a little bit of enough of that, but now I'm actually double dog, triple dog daring you, if you will to put me to the test on this and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out all the things till every need is taken care of. What he's really saying is, is that I'm actually only pushing you to the limits to trust me with 10% of what I've already provided you with. Of everything that I've already given to you, would you return 10% of that back to me? It really, I think, has a very arbitrary value to it as far as monetary or anything else. I think it's just a matter of God could have put any number down there and the people probably would have pushed back and balked at it. If God would have said, bring 1% into the storehouse and see if I don't overflow everything with you, I think the people would have said, oh man, 1%, really? 
I mean, come on. I mean, after all, our tax rate's only 7.25%. Can you believe God actually wants 10%? I mean, I'm self-employed, so that means I get taxed at 35.4%, and God wants another 10%. I mean, come on, God. I mean, you're only leaving me with about 60% here. And, you know, then I got bills. I got kids in college. You know, God, I got all these things going on. And look, there's lots of other people out there. Any of you have college-age kids, and if you don't yet, you're going to learn something called FAFSA. It is terrible, and I don't like it. And I'll tell you why I don't like it. Because every year I have to fill out a FAFSA form for my kids, and, and, and the, the federal financial aid security, whatever the deal is, well, I don't even know what the acronym means. It just means evil as far as I'm concerned. But whatever it is, it has decided how much I can pay for my kids to go to college based upon my income. And so let's say I'm leveraged to the hills. I've got debt like you wouldn't believe, and there's not a nickel in my bank account. My kids are going to get more assistance for their college because I didn't live my life responsibly. But because I've lived my life responsibly and I don't have debt out to my ears and I have a savings account and all these other things, my kids get less because the government has decided how much I can pay for my kids to go to college. Now, that's great and all, and we've got to deal with our kids that will keep them alive, but they're responsible for college. And so we help them with living and food. I mean, look at my kids. They're so skinny. But I'll just tell you right now, I send each of my kids 100 bucks a month, and that's it. And if you've ever tried to feed 20-year-olds on 100 bucks a month, it ain't happening. I'm not unaware of that. I don't care either. But my kids don't talk to me, you know, call me and go, you know what, Dad? I just, I just need more. You know what they, you know what they know? Hey, Dad, I gotta go find a job. That's right. Very good. Dad, thanks for taking care of me. The way I, I'm grateful for my kids. They're grateful and appreciative, right? But the day they call me and saying you're just not giving me enough, we'll fix that. We'll start at zero. You remember that time when I used to give you a hundred dollars? What's in it for me? This is what's going on with the people in Malachi's day. They're pushing God's button, and he's triple-dog daring them. He's laying down the gauntlet and saying, look, you're throwing a scenario at me that you've never actually tried to run out in truth. If you would just actually attempt to tithe to me and give to me 10%, watch what I'll do. But we're not even having that conversation because you're not actually doing that you're just complaining about a concept that I've laid down that you failed to execute. Did you know not a single church in America gives a full 10% based upon per capita income? Only one Episcopalian church last year, right outside of D.C., gave about 9.7% based upon its per capita income. Now, just to put that in perspective for you, in, in, the, in the greater Katy area, the median income in the greater Katy area is $146,000 a year. And so based upon that, that would be about $14,000 a year that every household would give. And, and did you know that if, if every household actually did that, especially those who are churched, that, that we wouldn't be working on an $18,000 budget in our church, we'd be working somewhere around a $47,000 budget in our church. It would be three times what it is now in our church based upon that average. I've done the math. If you're wondering why I did the math, it was for a sermon example, okay? Because God has provided for us. He continues to provide for us. He continues to show us, but I think sometimes we've got to see the numbers right in front of us to understand what's really happening. And people give towards something that they can see happening. The people in Malachi's day are saying, we're not prospering. You're not blessing us. All these other people out here are living wickedly, and they're not tithing. Why are you messing with us on this? 
Why are you coming to us on this, God? Why don't you go talk to the rest? There's more of them than there are of us. If they would just give 5%, we wouldn't have to give anything. After all, we're your chosen people. God's telling them that, that, that you're a cursed people because of your own selfishness. It actually has nothing to do with me withholding from you. It has everything to do with you withholding from me. Now think about that for a second. You mean God works on a if you then I will? Yeah, he does sometimes. That's his, that's his perspective. He can do that. But he's saying you're actually bringing a curse upon yourself because you're withholding a blessing. You're keeping that from me and from you because you've decided not to put me to the test on this to see if I won't provide every need that you have. We're not talking about your wants. We're talking about your needs. When we give to God with gratitude, we never escape God's blessing. In this season of giving by which we're in right now, where we, we focus a little more on that, I think some of it has to do with we, we, we look at the Christ child as the greatest gift ever given to mankind, and we think about the most precious gift we've ever received. But I also think that some of us look at the end of the year and go, this is tax season. And I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who itemize my taxes. You know how much you've got to give these days to itemize and get a deduction? i got to be honest, it's really not about the deduction anymore. And just to be fair, as your pastor, one of the things that I pray about and that I'm concerned about, that I'm preparing for in the future, is that at some point churches are going to lose their tax exemption status. And it's not going to matter what you give for your taxes. It's not going to matter. If that were to happen right now, most of our churches in our communities right now, that 60% of their budget would have to go to pay property taxes they never paid before. And you know what that, you know what happens when that happens? Missions go away. Programs go away. Pastors go away. Churches go away. None of those things actually matter if all we're giving to the church for now is just to feel good about ourselves instead of responding properly to God when he says, just test me on 10%, see what, I, see what I do. Just test me on a little bit and see how I open the doors. Just test me on a little bit. I don't care about your tax break. I don't care about your church building. I don't care about your staff. What I care about is your soul and the souls of lost people. Just test me on this and see if I won't open the door and fulfill every need you ever had. He's saying, you're not testing me on this because you don't trust me. And why don't you trust me? Because you don't understand that the things that you have actually come from me because I'm trying to sustain you. Because all you're asking is what's in it for me. And he goes on to have a little bit more conversation with them saying, return to me, return to me. Come back to me. I've gone nowhere. Where are you right now? But look what he says in verse 13. Does your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What they're, what they're really just saying here is this, is that what, what they see, and what do they call it, humble bragging? Y'all ever hear that term, humble bragging? That all these people are walking around. Now, this is pre-Pharisee, Sadducee day. This is pre-the people that, that Jesus really, they, were, they existed, but not to the extent. But they used to have this deal where they would walk around and shut everybody down. Okay, everybody, everybody just quiet now. Everybody just pay attention. I know we're in a public street, and I'm out. I want everyone to see that I'm about to give this poor person over here. I don't, I don't care what your name is. I'm going I'm to give this poor person over here some of my money, and I want everybody to see that. And then they would give the poor person their money and they would walk around and maybe beat themselves with this phylactery thing or they would, they would walk around and they're just going, oh, 
look at me, I'm just a martyr. I'm just giving to all the people that need. And, and, and so the, the Israelites are watching this right now. They're saying, you know, God, I can be mournful without giving you my money. Like, I, I shouldn't have to pay for that, right? But, but all these people who aren't giving you the tithe, they're walking around pretty happy folks. And I'd like to be like them. I want what they have. But here's the scary thing. Ignorance is bliss. And what they have is a lack of knowledge of a one true God who loves them intensely. And so they're walking around enjoying the pleasures of this world, keeping every nickel that they have, every trust and every faith that they have is in themselves and what they can do and not in the Lord God Almighty. And when times get rough, you don't have enough money to pay your way out of it. You just don't. Some of you may have remembered that book, You Can't Take It With You, or the story that goes along with that, where you can't be buried with all of your, all of your money. It, 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 you can't take it with you. It's not going to be spent in eternity. And this is what God is calling the people out, and he's saying, look, you've spoken poorly against me. You've pushed back on me over and over and over again. And I'm not asking you to be like those other people, but this was always man's problem. They always wanted what everybody else had. They always wanted to be like everybody else. And what they missed out on was that they had the greatest advantage was they had God. And if they would but honor him, would put him in the right place in their hearts and in their lives, all the rest of the nations would say, we want what they have but they don't. And he says, you've spoken hard against me because I've asked you just to trust me with the thing that you seem to hold so dearly in your life and you've said no, and instead of trusting me, you want what everybody else has. This is what got you into this problem to begin with when you said, we want a king like everybody else and God sent this man named Saul down there and things went really south for humanity in that place too. He says, I'm king enough. Why would you want an earthly king when you have the creator of all mankind? Money has become a hindrance for these people to trust God. And the people say, it doesn't pay for us to serve you. What's in it for us? It doesn't do us good to give you our money. What are we going to get out of this in return? I don't know about you, but as a parent, one of the greatest moments in my life is when my kids do what I ask them to do without asking questions. This past week, my daughter was on her way to, to Dallas, and because she's not here, I can use her as a sermon example. She was on her way to Dallas. She had a low tire. I said, hey, stop by discount tire put some air in that tire they'll do it for you for free you don't even have to get out of your car no no i'll just stop by kroger it's easier for me to do that it's faster it's on the way i'll just do it myself and I, you know i'm proud of her i've I raised an independent child i didn't bother to ask if she had a tire gauge and so she put air in her tire and she made it about 15 miles down the road and she calls me and says dad i just had a blowout put too much air in her tire She's driving probably a little faster than she should have and so I said, okay, dad's on his way. I'll be there. I'm about 20 minutes away. I need you to find a, a discount tire place so we can get your tires fixed. In the past, when my children have been stressed, they, like their father, have a tendency to give you all the reasons why they don't want to do what you just asked them to do. And my daughter said, no problem, dad. I'll, I'll be waiting right here, and I'll find out a place where I can get my tires changed. Thanks for coming to get me. Thank you, Lord. 22 years i got two years left on the other one. I'm still working on it. All right. It is a good thing whenever people do what you ask them to do and they don't push back and they don't tell you all the reasons why they can't do it and they don't argue with you and they don't fight with you and they don't fuss with you. And, and, and maybe even in their hearts and minds, they may be thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but you know what? I'm just going to do it because the person who asked me to do it cares about me and they would never ask me to do something that would harm me. Isn't it? Have y'all ever experienced that? Maybe it's just a coworker. Maybe, maybe it's a spouse. 
I mean, Amanda and I, we love to go places, and I love to take directions from her. And her British Siri, y'all know how I feel about that. But I know it brings her joy when I just say, yes, dear, I'll turn left at the next corner. I know that makes her happy when I do that. Because honestly, at the end of the day, you know what matters more than anything is our relationship. And our relationships get damaged whenever I push against the little things. Because when we get to the big things, we're not prepared to have those conversations. Because in the little stuff, we haven't trusted one another. We haven't respected one another. We haven't realized this isn't a battle worth dying over. This is what God is saying right here to his people. I'm asking you for 10%. I'm not asking you to be a martyr. And if you just really look at what I've given for you, you still have 90% by which that I've blessed you with. Can you just trust me on this one and see what I do next? As the chapter comes to an end, verses 16, we see this. Because they're not done with this conversation. It says this in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Imagine that. A bunch of church folks didn't like what God had to say, so they went to one another. They started yapping about it. Because, you know, that's productive. That's that's productive. We don't like what the boss man said. Let's just go talk to other employees about that. We'll we'll overturn this, right? Apparently, somehow, worshiping God became a democracy suddenly. If enough of us get together and outvote God, he'll change his mind even if he's wrong. Does this sound familiar at all? Because this is exactly what happens. This is what we do. When someone of authority tells you something that you don't like, instead of just chewing on it and maybe praying about it and processing that or even just giving that authority figure the benefit of the doubt, you run to somebody else and say, can you make me feel better about being arrogant and being pompous and being disobedient against the authority figure? Because, you know, he's treated you bad before too. Am I close? Did I get some nerves on that one? Because this is just humanity at its finest right here. And so those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Now, here's the good thing. They did actually fear the Lord, but I'm not sure they feared him the right way. They spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention, and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. You know, in Katy, Texas, we have three counties that meet all in one place. It's over in a park right here in Old Town Katy. And when Katy was first founded, there was a a time capsule put in there. And in that time capsule, there's three lists that are in there. And in that, on those lists are, are, are this, the members of the First Baptist Church of Katy, the members of the Methodist Church in Katy, and then everybody else in Katy who were not members of those two churches. Do that today and somebody's getting sued. I'm waiting to see if they open up that time capsule. Uh, I think it ought to be coming up here pretty soon, actually. But just consider that for a moment. Believe it or not, God's an accountant, and he's going to open up the ledger. And as those people were mumbling, some of them came to the conclusion, you know what, this God who loves us, he may actually be right. Let's do what he says. And God said, I'll remember those who came to that conclusion, and I'll write their name down in the book of remembrance because one day I'm going to open up the book and I'm going to remember those who trusted me and I'm going to remember those who did not. And my judgment's going to come swiftly and my reward's going to come behind as well. God always begins his judgment with his people. I want you to understand that. And he judges his people because he wants us to be an example for all those who are watching on the outside. 
and he's saying, I will write down your, your name in this book of remembrance. This is not the first time this happened. Moses had done this as well when the people were, were bickering about, and they, they put down a book of remembrance so that they would know who was and who wasn't with God, who was and who wasn't for him. Remember, those people that were in that mix, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years because they weren't all united trusting God in what they were doing. And when the ledger is open one day, God says, the bill's going to come due and I'm going to collect. The bill's going to come due and I'm going to collect. All this conversation about giving, all this conversation about tithing, all this conversation, it really comes back down to trust. It comes back down to saying, you know what, God, I'm going to take the one thing in my life that I seemingly think I have the most control over, and here's the words that we use. Are you ready for this? My money. Now, uniquely, the United States actually puts God's name on money, not ours, at least for now. In God we trust, except when he asks for it back. In God we trust, except whenever he wants to do something with it that we're just not on board with because we need all the details. I'm not talking about a blind trust here. I'm talking about looking at everything you have. Look at the provisions that God has provided for you and understanding that we can trust him, not just with our money. But what a great place to start to say, you know what, God, I feel like that you've given me this so that you can provide for others. And what we notice is that when God tells people that they're better off keeping company with those who are in line with his vision. That's why churches get together and we talk about giving. That's why there are more verses in the New Testament about money than anything else out there. Because God knows and Jesus knew that we were going to have a problem with money. And realistically, where our money goes, our heart quickly follows. And so you need to be keeping track with, you need to be keeping lockstep with, you need to be unified with people who are all committed to the same vision and giving towards that vision. Last week, I listened to one of our local pastors here, one of his sermons. I I like to listen to what other guys are preaching and hear things. And, And I heard a snippet that he said, you know, everybody's got an ideal of what they want the church to be and how they want that church to look like. And here's the thing. They all think the church ought to be this way, but they don't fund it. They don't give toward it to be that way. Now, that doesn't say that just because you give, you get to dictate the direction. But when you have an ideal of how the church ought to be, and and until it becomes that, you're not going to give towards that, it's never going to happen. The church is never going to be what you want it to be if you don't support it and what it is. And if it is following God, and if it is trusting God, if we are getting into the community and being faithful of what he has provided for us, whether it be a million dollars or ten dollars, and we're faithful with that, then God will make the church into what he wants it to be. And when people see that God is actively doing things in our church, in our body of believers, they get behind that, they get on board with that, and they support that mission, that vision, and that call that God has for us. But if they're busy saying, and I want it to be my way, a certain way, they're never going to get it. And they're going to run down to the church down the street or a different church, and they're going to ask the same question we asked at the very beginning, what's in it for me? Why should I give towards that church? What's in it for me? Newsflash. Your salvation cannot be purchased with your dollars, but somebody else could hear the good news of Jesus Christ because of the resources that you trusted God with so that the church could be on mission with him to go and tell others about Christ. That's the mission of every church, is to reach the nations, as God says. And they will look at you, and they will say, I want what they have. The people's issue was not money, and our problem today is not money. We're a blessed people financially. I know some of you are going, no, we're not either. We're better off than most of the world. The issue is trust. It's trusting God with what we have. And what the messenger Malachi is saying is that the king is coming, and we need to learn to give. The king is on his way, 
And when the king comes and he sets up his kingdom and he sets up his throne, before he takes final authority, what he wants to do is utilize each and every one of us to build his kingdom. And building that kingdom not only takes resources, it takes responsible people to steward those resources. I was asked a while back, would you ever let a convicted criminal be on the staff of your church? And I said, well, it depends on the crime. And they're like, what? Let's be honest. Depends on the crime. I don't know it would be a good idea to have someone who's been convicted of, of embezzlement and fraud on our finance committee. However, they're probably the most qualified. Think about that for a minute. They're probably the most qualified. Is it good stewardship for us? I don't know. Are we still holding their sins against them even though God's forgiven them? Probably so. We're human beings. But at the, at the end of the day, that decision's not a blanket decision. It's let's trust God on this. Does it make more sense for us not to? Probably so. Let's don't open the doorway and send us down a path where people are going, do you know that Bernie Madoff is their financial person? It's about trust. And we're going to fail each other, but we don't want to fail God in this. And so let me just tell you a couple things that I think we could be ready for as we think about the king coming and preparing his kingdom and this messenger that Malachi is talking about and that John the Baptist will come and declare that Jesus is coming and Jesus himself. Just a couple of quick things. First of all, giving is a response, not a request. So many times we've all heard the heartstrings. I can't tell you how sick I get at Christmas time when I see the, the, the what is it, the ASPCA or SPCA commercials with the, the starving animals and the dogs in the cold and on chains and everything. And of all things, they're playing Silent Night. That makes me crazy. I'm not saying God doesn't love animals. I'm just saying that the Savior of the world deserves better than a ploy to pull money to save dogs and cats when we're killing babies by law in, this, in the United States. Every part of that's wrong. Every part of that's wrong. And so when we talk about giving in the church, th this is not a, it's not a request, it's a response. We properly respond to God by testing him and asking if he'll open the windows of heaven and pour out every need we have. And we don't respond to him hoping to get something back from him. We respond to his holiness because he's already provided for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Well, God, as soon as I make a little bit of money here, or as soon as we get out of debt here, or as soon as we stop making bad decisions that we've made for 30 years in our life, as soon as we get there, I'll start giving. And he's saying, no, that's not it. Trust me now. I'll figure it out for you. God, I don't know if I can turn off my cable. I mean, that, that, that's tough. I, I need that. Do you? Do you really? You don't. It's not about what you don't have. It's about the willingness by which to trust God in what he's already provided for you. It's not a request. It's a response. That's what giving really is. And I'm asking you this morning to respond to God properly, not for what you get out of it, but for what he's already done to say, you know what? Holy God, you know better than I do. You got a bigger plan than what I can ever see. And to be perfectly fair, I'll probably never see all of your plan until I start trusting you. And a good place for me to start is 10% of what I give. Secondly, giving is not an obligation, it's an, it's an invitation. Or excuse me, it's an obligation, not an invitation. Now, we don't often like to hear about that. Well, what do you mean we have to give? That church only talks about money. We don't talk about money that much, but everybody talks about money. Everybody wants a little more of it. Nobody spends it properly or saves it correctly. Everybody's looking for it the right way. But it is an obligation for those of us who are in Christ because we understand that we do not let people go without. 
I got a weird text this morning, and if, if you sent me that text, actually it was at 11 o'clock last night, if you sent me this text, God bless you, I don't have your name in my, 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 my phone, but it said, do you need $600 for a Christmas? And I'm like, well, let me answer the first question is always yes, right? I'm not sure what I need $600 for, but I need $600 if you're just, you know, giving it out, sure. It felt like a stimulus, maybe that's what it was, I don't know. But do you need $600 for a Christmas? And I'm like, actually, I don't. I, I, not for me. But maybe they're asking, is there someone in need? I don't know. But I'm still kind of scared to answer that, right? Because I don't know what's going to be on the other side of that text message. Now I'm going to get phone calls, you know, every place saying, well, here's what you do. If you sign up for this and do this and this, I don't know what the case may be. So if that's you, God bless you. And yes, I need $600, okay? So don't withhold that. If God is calling you, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Giving is an obligation, though, for us. 2 Corinthians 9 says, He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply the, the and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Listen, whatever God has provided for us, he's done so so that we can provide that for others to help them out. It's not that God can't or won't directly help people. What he wants to do is use his church, use his believers to bless others. And so whatever he has provided for us, he's done so as part of ministry to others. I had a great boss years ago that said, whenever you get a raise, don't realize that in your lifestyle. Learn to save that and learn to give to others. And, that, and you may never buy a mansion, you may never have these things, but I guarantee you'll always be blessed by how you give to others because you live according to your means. I don't know about you, but when we first got married, we had a whole lot of hand-me-down furniture that was put together backwards. I won't tell you who did that. Okay. And for a long time, we had those things. We were happy, though. We were two dumb kids with two young kids, and we were happy. We're happy still today. But as our lifestyle increased and the need increased, it began to make different decisions in our life about how we, where we work and how we work and what we buy and what we spend and all these things. And all that stuff is great and all. And I'm not saying God didn't bless us, and I'm telling you, if you have wealth, God bless you, but he actually did so so you can bless others. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. Use it wisely. Know where it came from. But just as the one who supplies the seed will multiply that seed for you so that you may use that multiplication for others. And that's an obligation. That's not an invitation. God's not saying, hey, you know what? If I give you a little bit extra, would you like to be a part of what I'm doing? No. He's saying, I gave you a little bit extra because I trusted you so that you can be a part of what I'm doing and you can bring others into what I'm doing too because I love them too and I sent my same son Jesus to die for them. Third thing I want you to see this morning is that giving is a discipline, not, on, not an event. And this is actually probably where most churches get it wrong. Is that, okay, churches, this is catch-up Sunday. Have you all ever heard of that before? Catch-up Sunday. I thought that was dinner on the ground whenever somebody brings food. You make sure you bring lots of ketchup because some of y'all can't cook. Not y'all, actually. We've never done that. No, catch-up Sunday. That's the Sunday where we all catch up to all of our tithes and offerings that we, we didn't give this past year. I got news for you. If in December we have catch-up Sunday for what you didn't give from January on to now, odds are you probably did not save that money thinking, I'm waiting for catch-up Sunday. You don't have it. And we get this wrong by trying to make giving an event instead of saying, let this be who you are, faithful, consistently faithful to God. Second Chronicles 31 says that, and they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things. They did this on a regular basis. They were consistent in this because as they were faithful, they recognized God was always faithful. He was not faithful only when I tithe. He was faithful when I didn't tithe. But because he is faithful, I am responding to him in a regular basis, not just every now and then. 
we fell on some hard times. This past year's been rough. We, we, we lost our jobs or we had these big, uh, you know, expenses. Listen, 85% of Americans don't have $1,000 in their bank account right now. They have it before COVID. They don't have it now. They're one major auto repair away from being homeless. Truth. I get it. It's not about that. It's about they're going to trust God no matter. I'm going to tell you, I've been to some very poor places in this world, and the poorest of the poor are the most generous people I've ever met in my entire life. And it has burdened me to sit out on a hunt in the middle of nowhere in Africa and watch someone give me more than they make in a week because they were blessed to have me in their home. My shoes cost more than they make in a year. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop wearing them. It doesn't mean that I'm going to feel bad about that. But it does mean that God gave me those shoes so I can pound those little feet to go tell the gospel to people who need to hear it. That's how he's provided. And I need to do that faithfully not just every once in a while. Finally, I leave you with this, and this is something that I really want you to think about as we close out this year, as we get towards the end of this book, that giving is an investment, not an expense. And some of you are financial people, and you're kind of, you may actually get this a little faster than the rest of us, but giving is an investment, not an expense. I don't know about you, if you sit down and you do a family budget and you look and say, okay, groceries cost me this much, car insurance cost me this much, the church cost me this much. Man, I sure hope that's not the case. Listen, everything costs. Everything has a value associated with it, whether it be our time or whatever the case may be. But I'm going to tell you something, that when you invest in kingdom work, when you truly give back to what God wants to do, you don't go without. Your soul is satisfied. God provides every physical need that you have. He makes sure that you're taken care of, maybe not the way that you think you ought to be or that you want to be like the people in Malachi's day were, but he takes care of you. He might even discipline you a little bit to teach you that, you know, I don't need all of those things. I don't need the latest and greatest. I used to work for Best Buy years ago. Some of you know that. And you know the greatest thing about working at Best Buy was no longer working at Best Buy because I had a craving for new technology. Oh, this new thing came out. And here's wife with two children, debt up to her eyeballs, going, hey, this new thing's about to come out. I loved working there because I got an employee discount. And so suddenly it was okay to have all those toys because it was cheaper for me. But I got to tell you something about volume buying. Just because you buy more that costs less, you end up spending more in the long run. That's why Sam's gets us every month. I don't need a 55-gallon drum of ketchup. Giving is an investment. It's not an expense. And when we look at the church and we look at what God is doing, we look at anything that we give money to and we count that as an expense, we miss out that God is doing greater things that we cannot see. And most of the reason we cannot see what God is doing is because we're too busy asking that question way back from the beginning, what's in it for me? There is something to be said about just obediently trusting God and saying, you've provided for me, you've given me everything that I need. Proverbs 21, 26 says, All day long he craves and he craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. The righteous gives and he does not hold back. This is not a give till it hurts conversation. This is I give because God asked me to, and I responded to him, trusting that he's got a better plan for the money he's provided for me than I do. And let's be honest, you know that's true. God handles the money he's provided for you better than you do. 
And if we're really honest, he handles everything better than you do. And he's just asking us to trust him with 10% back. And the people were saying back in those days, as we're saying now today, I just can't do that. Things are just tight. I'm just not ready to make that kind of commitment for you. It's not as if God told Jesus, go down there, and I want you to cut off a couple of your fingers for the salvation of mankind. He says, I'm going to send my one and only son and his blood, all of it is going to pay the price for all of humanity. It's going to be the down payment. There's not enough animals to sacrifice to cover up all of your sins. But I'm going to send one perfect, blameless lamb. And he's going to take away the sins of the world. I love the Christmas story because here's Mary. While we're complaining about giving 10%. Here's the angel saying to Mary that you're going to become pregnant and he's going to sit on the throne of David. And you're going to call him the Prince of Peace and the Mighty One. His name will be Emmanuel. You'll call him Jesus. It's not a family name, but you'll call him Jesus. And Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I think that day when she stood at the foot of the cross, she remembered the day the angel came to her. She remembered Jesus kicking her in her spleen whenever she was riding on that donkey. She remembered the day that she gave birth to a son. And the angels were announcing that, and these shepherds came out of nowhere. She remembered the day that she told him to turn the water into wine, and as she watched him drive a spear into his side, she remembered all those things. And I don't think she was saying, you know, God, couldn't he have just done this with just 10%? Was there a a cheaper way? Wasn't there a, a different way you could have done this? Because I really want my son back. people in Malachi's day, they missed it. And for 400 years, God was silent on that. But yet he brought back this Jesus child just for us. And he's calling us today to make giving a discipline in our life for kingdom work. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. What's in it for you? It's not about monetary gain. It's not about how God's going to bless you. It's not walking around like a martyr. It's about saying, I faithfully trust God, and he's provided for me, and that's good for me. And I'm all right with that. Some of us are a little older. In Christmas time, it's hard to shop for people who have everything they already need, isn't it? And if they really want it that bad, they'll go buy it. My wife and I are the worst at that because we actually talk ourselves out of spending that kind of money because we're just cheap. We're not going to do that. It infuriates our children, by the way one of the joys we have in life. But what we've learned is that we have what we need because the most precious things we have are our relationships. And this past year, COVID has really challenged that. And in the middle of trying to figure out all those situations where we're going to be around family and friends, it's taken resources to try to continue to reach out to people. And church, your giving matters. But more so than the finances behind that, your giving matters because you're saying, I'm willing to trust God with a fraction of what he's provided with me. That's really all that it comes down to. I'm willing to trust God. I'm willing to give back to him because he's got a bigger plan. God's got a great plan for each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Father, in Christ's name, we thank you so much for loving us the way that you do, for providing for us the way that you provide. Lord, it is kind of difficult sometimes to understand that when you talk about money and giving in the church that everybody 